Hi everyone, I'm Mike Pappas, and I beat the often path by helping to moderate online platforms to keep everyone safe. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this show, we believe that unusual times call for unusual success stories, and boy, do we have one of those for you today. Joining me is Mike Pappas, the CEO and co-founder of Modulate.ai, a startup using cutting-edge machine learning to make voice chat safe. Well, in case you don't play online games, there's an entire universe of people out there who play games like Call of Duty, League of Legends, you know, all that stuff. And they use in-game voice chat to communicate with each other. The problem is, like other digital avenues and platforms, these spaces can be made toxic by bullies, trolls, and hateful people. For years, this toxicity has been seen as something of an unsolvable problem. Well, Mike and his co-founder have created a product called ToxMod that is a significantly more effective and cheaper way to moderate voice chats, creating a better experience for the vast majority of players who aren't, you know, bullies or jerks. They've raised over $30 million in funding so far, and they've recently made Time's list of the 100 most influential companies. It's a brilliant solution to a problem that you might not even have thought about. So here's Mike Pappas of Modulate.ai. So let's start with the problem that you're addressing, which is there even a problem? Because I wasn't aware of any problem. Aren't all online platforms inherently safe? Uh, boy, I wish, but unfortunately, that that's not the case today. You know, ranging in in sort of problem severity from things like hate speech and harassment, which I, I think everyone kind of knows are unfortunately prevalent online, up to the really kind of insidious stuff: violent radicalization, child grooming, um, self harm campaigns, and sort of pushing folks in that direction through. But hang on, hang on, I've got to stop you right there because that's just free speech. There's no such thing as hate speech or hate speech or harassment. Let's just start with that assumption, right? I mean, sure, you you can call it whatever you want to call it, but when when I when you know you're walking down the street, you're headed to the grocery store, and I'm driving by, and I roll down my window and I shout a bunch of slurs at you. Happens How all does the that time. make you feel? You know, that's not something that you're going to say, you know, oh, I'm glad that I had that experience. You know, we're not talking about what what I have the right to say, what, whether, you know, the police should chase me down for shouting that from my car. We're talking about what makes for a good experience in an online platform. Um, and, you know, the, these platforms, especially game studios, like they're, they're in the business of creating a fun experience, of creating an experience people want to go and participate in. And so if the, the situation is that there's people driving by and shouting all of these slurs, they haven't succeeded at creating that fun experience, whatever name you want to put on it. That's just that's a problem for them. And that's something that they want to do something about. But harassment is just part of the fun. Maybe for a small number of people, when people actually do, so, I, and I, I know you're, I know you're joking on it, but it's, it's an, it's unfortunately, it's a thing that we do here every. I guess every for a certain percentage of the population, yeah. And, and in fact, it's about two percent. There have been 2%. a ton of okay. studies. There, there have been studies across games, across different kinds of online platforms. What we consistently find is it's about two, maybe three percent of players or users on these online platforms who are kind of there to to mess with people who are there because they enjoy going out and just being as kind of radical, extreme, offensive as possibly they can. Those trolls. two to three percent trolls, yeah, and that that two to three percent they they make up for depending on the platform 
anywhere from 20 to 50 or 60% of the bad experiences people have. No, that's not 100%. A lot of the remainder comes from anything from someone having a bad day to you don't know the cultural norms in this new group that you walked into. So you say something that you didn't realize was offensive to just people who are ignorant, but not necessarily malintended, right? Which is unfortunately just a thing that the the world's evolving quickly. Not everyone has that full context. So education is important. All of that is important. But Time and time again, what we see is there There really is this small but very core contingent of users online who are, you know, very much intending to go out and create this negative experience. But the vast majority of people, they don't feel that way. They, they've succumbed to the expectation that there's nothing we can do about hate and harassment. And so we're just going to accept it, I guess. I guess I'll just mute that person. I don't have another choice. But 98% of people do raise their hands and say, I wish it wasn't this way. I wish something could be done. I just don't know what's possible. Yeah, that's such a great point. And people who are even just casually interested or who observe these things, the culture of some of these voice chats can be pretty harsh. Even I know that, and I don't even play a whole lot of video games. I know that the casual slip of hate speech and racial slurs, live streamers, they just casually slip into something because there's a cultural component there that there is this world that people who aren't involved in the gaming community are generally not aware of. Of course, they get a a taste with things like Twitter and YouTube comments and Instagram comments. They get a taste of what trolls can do and the kinds of things that negative people can say. But the voice chat is a particularly unique environment because it's related to each game and it can really get out of hand fast if somebody's not there to sort of rein it in. So how did you become aware of this as a problem? I know you're a gamer yourself. How did And how did you come up with the idea that maybe this was a problem that you could solve? Yeah, I mean, my myself and my co-founder, Carter, we've been kind of together for from the beginning on, on this work. And we, we both play online games. We both have unfortunately experienced some of that harassment that basically every online gamer has experienced. Um, but actually, we came at this kind of from a totally different angle. Um, we, we first built Modulate um, kind of looking for a, a unique technical niche that we could dive into where we could do something really unique. Um, and Carter is an absolutely brilliant sort of machine learning engineer. He was working at the time at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab out in Pasadena. No and big he deal. and I were chatting about, you know, no big deal, literal rocket scientist. Sure, I'm going there next. Um, but, yeah. That's my next thing after this meeting. <laughs> um, but anyways, so, you know, we were talking about cool new trends happening in machine learning. Um, at the time, this was 2014, 2015, there was this thing called neural style transfer. Upload a family photo, get it back in the style of Picasso or Van Gogh or something like mm. that. And Carter, you know, mentioned offhand, hey, you can take audio and convert it to something called a spectrogram, which is basically an image representation of the audio. So what if you did that style transfer on that image and turned it back to audio? Maybe that could be like an actual voice changer. And we kind of had one of those TV show moments where we stared at each other silently for a few seconds. And then we're suddenly like, wait, 
was that a good idea? Is that, should we we go do that? Um, And so we went and, you know, did some research, looked into the space and we found there's lots of stuff in speech to text. There's lots of stuff in text to speech. No one was really doing speech to speech. And so we actually got our start trying to do this kind of live voice modification machine learning technology. We actually got pretty far, built some cool technology. Um, And, you know, as we were doing that, we were talking amongst each other about, you know, what are we going to do with this? And hey, we could use it for online gaming, give people more of a chance to express their identity in a way that they're comfortable with, you know, ranging from folks who are concerned about, you know, presenting themselves the way their physical voice represents, up to folks that have, you know, voice dysphoria or members of the trans community who use online gaming to, you know, explore and express their identity in new ways. And so we went to talk to the game studios about this. And the game studios said, you're absolutely right that we want to give people a safer voice chat experience. But what you're what you're not seeing is that the real blocker on the voice chat experience is not these people trying to participate and it not being engaging enough. It's the mm-hmm. people who are far, far too terrified to ever participate in the first place because of this culture of toxicity we have. And so that's the problem we really need to tackle first. Um, and as you know, we chatted more with the studios, we came to better understand the difficulties of that voice moderation problem. It turns out, very long story short, a lot of the tech we had built for the voice changing system actually enables the kind of emotion understanding and nuance comprehension that we really needed to do voice moderation in a good way. So we we kind of stumbled into having all the right tools, seeing the the importance of this problem really expressed to us from the studios, and then we're able to put it all together. Did you find that people were using your technology for ransom? Because that's what I would do to bring all the Cheetos to... <laughs> We we didn't, and we were pretty darn careful in those early <laughs> days about who we gave access to the technology around. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time thinking about how we would build controls into it. We actually had a, a watermark so that if someone did try to use it for fraud, um, we would have the ability to identify, hey, yes, this is a synthetic voice and we know who bought it. Um, it wouldn't, you know, be obvious to everyone else. But if it if it came down to a law enforcement scenario or something like that, we, we were trying to be very careful to make sure that this could actually be wound back in those cases. Bring four cases of Mountain Dew Code Red. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but Re- really, think- Mountain Dew Code Red is what you would use that power for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm trying to embrace the gaming community. I'm trying to get my head in the the space. You know, when when this idea was conceived, I could just imagine you know Cheetos falling out of our mouth. Maybe that's a stereotype, but it does bring up a point. You mentioned gender dysphoria. Obviously, the the impression that I think a lot of people have is that these types of negative things impact women disproportionately because the the gamer community skews male in general. Am I correct in saying that? Um, it depends actually on how you slice it. If you if you literally just look today at people who say, you know, yes, I play games for an hour plus per day, um, I believe it actually skews slightly female or else is pretty darn close to even. Wow. Um, but if you ask who identifies as a gamer, that word carries connotations yeah. and the people who are willing to self-identify as a gamer. And I do think, you know, the folks who tend to play more the online competitive games um, versus, you know, mobile games are much more skewed female over male. 
Um, but yeah, so it, it depends a little bit on how you slice it. And I think a lot of the gaming community for that reason is trying to drop the term gamer that's been so overloaded with all these negative mm. connotations and just talk about it. It's people. It's people that like to like play games. and have fun yeah. and socialize. Always people first. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I get yeah. that. So it's interesting that you mentioned the idea that people are so afraid that their voice will betray them or something about them or their characteristics that they just don't speak at all. That's a nuance that I hadn't considered. Yeah, and uh, you know the the people who per- choose not to participate in voice chat, it's not just because they're worried about their voice. That's why we changed to voice moderation instead of the right. voice changing, that the voice changing wasn't solving enough of the problem. Um, but a lot of folks, you know, you talk about a game like you know League of Legends or Call of Duty that just have these reputations of being very intense spaces, and if you are someone who you know is a member of a you know underprivileged group or is just often the subject of harassment in different scenarios, and you hear about that, are are you going to take that gamble? Right? Nah. It's just not. It's just not something that most people nah. want to try. Um. And, you know, the studios have been working hard on this problem. They've made some progress. I think with our help, they're making a lot more progress. Um, but one of the big challenges is, you know, if the studio just goes out and says to their players, we promise it's safe now, it's not toxic anymore, <laughs> who's going to buy it, right? Um, and so a, a big part of what we're really trying to work with the studios on is, look, we're not just here to flag these dirty words to you or something. We're really here to work with you on a strategy for your community that includes them in the process that actually has everyone come together and say, what do we want this game ecosystem to look like in the first place? And then let's all collaboratively build towards that. Um, but that that's a really important nuance that I think a lot of folks miss is, you know, yes, we sell to the game studios, but a huge part of the work that we're doing is in making sure that we're working closely with the players as well to understand what are they concerned about? What do they want out of this platform? And, you know, if they want a space where, you know, that small percentage of folks can just go all out and, you know, really, you know, the the trash talk to end all trash talks, sometimes that's okay as long as we can curate that space for them and you're not going to have some unsuspecting 10-year-old wander into that space by accident without knowing what they're getting into. Got it. So just sort of like the, uh, well... <laughs> the section of a video store in the olden days, <laughs> just sort of you're all sectioned off in your own little corner and you do whatever you like in that corner, but just don't come out here with the rest of us. That sort of idea. So, some Something to that effect. And, you know, it's it's not don't come out here with the rest of us. It's just if you come out with the if rest you of come us, out, there's yeah. a new set of expectations. Don't you do can't that. Bring that, that behavior yeah. to, to here. Um, right. And honestly, like that's that's like to a, to a less extreme extent. That's how we live our lives. The way that you behave, you know, when you're playing, I don't know, pick up soccer with your friends at a park versus when you have a couple of close friends over for a bunch of beers versus when you go to church, you're, you're behaving very differently. There's words that you will and won't say in each setting there, you know, there, there's norms that you learn about what is acceptable here and just what is going to cause people pain in a way that I don't want to, I don't want to create. I don't want to sort of deal with the repercussions of that's what we're talking about here. It's not saying the way you are is bad. It's just saying, you know, some games, especially games that are more focused on children, aren't trying to be, a rowdy bar 
they're trying to be more the equivalent of a playground. Right. And if someone in the real world went to a playground and just started talking very loudly about some of the things people talk about in online games, some some of the nearby parents would have some words for them, right? That's just not the place to have that conversation. Yeah. That's uh, that's a great point. And now I want to get a little bit philosophical about this whole online anonymity thing, because in the early days of the Internet, the anonymity factor was one of its chief selling points. You know, you can be whoever you can be in a chat room. You don't have to be yourself. And there are a lot of people who still cling to the idea of anonymity in general and think it's stupid to put any of your likeness or your real name or any information on the Internet whatsoever. Doing this is really stupid in the eyes of a lot of people on the Internet today. But what we've seen is that cloak of anonymity enables people to just be monsters because there's no accountability. You mentioned if somebody drives up and they start yelling horrible things at me, I can see their face and I can punch them in said face if I'm so moved. But behind this cloak of Internet trollness, that anonymity is what allows people to be particularly crazy. So what do you think about that debate? You know, some people say that Twitter would be solved if everybody had to upload their driver's license. So it was a real person saying everything. How do you feel about that kind of stuff? I, 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 I'm not so optimistic about that solution for two reasons. One is, you know, the obvious privacy repercussions. Like this, this is a thing we need to balance. Um, and I don't think just swinging all the way to one extreme side of it is the right approach. But putting that aside, even the, the problem is not itself anonymity. The problem, as you were kind of getting at, it's repercussions. Does this bad behavior have repercussions? If you are anonymous, the answer to that is more likely to be no. But in many, many places, even when you're not anonymous, the answer is still no. And people still learn there's no repercussions to my bad behavior. And so I'm going to go and do it anyway. So I think well, if you're taking... I was going to say, if you're, truly, if you're truly awful, the repercussion is that you might become president of the United States if you just <laughs> don't filter at all. So that's something to watch out for. I... You know, I'm I'm going to just <laughs> sit fifth. here and stutter a little bit, and then not engage with that too much. But yeah, I I I I think like the the basic idea there again, you know, is even if Twitter said everyone has to upload their driver's license, Joe Schmo going on and saying all people with this color skin don't deserve to exist, is Twitter actually going to go? track down that person, even if they have the information. Worst case scenario, they're going to take them off the platform. And they're probably not even going to do that because that's driving engagement. Um, and, you know, controversy is the fuel for an unfortunate number of these social media platforms. So they they can't afford to be that selective. But I, I think the real problem statement here is these platforms, before they talk about anonymity, before they talk about what exactly constitutes free speech, again, you've got to first go back and say, what kind of space was I trying to create in the first place? Am I trying to create the town square? Am I trying to create a playground for kids? Am I trying to create the bar where everyone gets really rowdy and picks fights with each other? But figure out what kind of space you want to create tell people that's the space you're creating so that they can opt into joining or not, and then do whatever the heck you want in there. Um, and at that point, once you've set those rules, you know, you can walk into the local rowdy sports bar 
and no one really knows who you are, you're in from out of town, you're leaving that day, you're basically as anonymous as you ever are online in that situation. And, you know, you're, you're going to participate in similar ways. But like, it, it, it's not really, I think, about the anonymity or not. It's about will there be repercussions for violating the norms in the first place? And ha- have there even been norms set that you can expect there would be repercussions for violating? Well, that makes sense. And the tech is called ToxMod, right? Do I have that right? That's correct. Okay. So uh, from a high level point of view, how does it work for an ignorant Uh, person such as myself? (laughs) No, please. Um, So if you, if you don't mind bearing with me for, let's call it two minutes here. Okay. um, If you're, if you're an online platform, (laughs) if you're an online platform and you're trying to moderate voice, what do you do? Well, the first answer is most platforms just give up. They say it's hopeless. This is impossible. Let's skip past that and say, what What do you do if you're actually trying? The first obvious idea is why don't I transcribe everything that's said and then analyze the text? Now, this is bad for a bunch of reasons. You know, you're missing out on a ton of you know emotion and nuance in the conversation, but also it's actually ridiculously expensive. Transcription costs just a ton of money. It's about a dollar per hour of audio on most of the major platforms. If you're talking about a major title like a League of Legends, that might be something like 100 million hours of audio per month. Multiply wow. those numbers together and even Riot Games just can't afford to do that, right? Wow. Um, so the next thing these platforms say is, we can't transcribe everything. How do we focus our attention on a smaller set of things to then transcribe and analyze? And the immediate thing that pops to everyone's mind is, oh, Let's wait for player reports, and then we'll analyze the stuff players report. That works okay, except for the fact that you know players often report others for just being better than them or various fake reasons, so it's only 30% actionable. We only see about 8% of bad behavior ever get reported, and that number is much, much lower for things like child grooming, where the kid doesn't know what's happening to them. Mm. Um, and so you're just you're missing a huge amount of stuff there. It's something, but it's not good enough. So the way ToxMod is different is we say instead of trying to transcribe everything or instead of just waiting for player reports, why don't we use some of this incredibly cool machine learning technology we've built to analyze the emotion, the behavioral dynamics of the conversation, the ups and downs of the energy of it, and use that to kind of recognize which of these conversations have the telltale sign of going badly in some way, (laughs) whether that's, you know, people, people are starting to shout at each other. Someone new joined the conversation and everyone got real quiet or, you know, it's a one-on-one conversation between an older male sounding voice and a young prepubescent female sounding voice. And then you look and see, Hey, that older male has three other one-on-ones also with prepubescent girls. Maybe we should take a closer look at that. Um, and so all of these sort of machine learning cues let us focus much more effectively. And instead of only catching 8% of the bad activity with 30% accuracy, we're catching anywhere between, let's call it 30 to 60% of the bad activity at 95% accuracy. Um, and that's you know before we further train wow. and improve the system to, to get better and better at finding that bad behavior. So a lot of those cues are just the general ebb and flow of the conversation as a whole. So analyzing the audio in that way? The, the, there's that. But again, you know, it's also the the history and dynamics of the players. So again, you know, that, that prepubescent girl talking to the older right. guy and seeing identify the, the, the parties there. Yeah. 
Um, and you can you can kind of think of it like wake word detection, where we're not doing full transcription, but we can look for small sets of words. Hey Siri, what is wake word detection? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, um, in instead of you know looking for Alexa or Siri, we can look for let's say you know F A G G O T. Usually, if that word's being said, not it's not guaranteed to be bad. But it's a good enough indicator that it's worth the cost for us to analyze those conversations in more yeah. detail. Um, and so there, there's a whole host of different models we use. It's, it's a very sophisticated machine learning system that we've trained um, not only you know, with lots of, lots of data and lots of you know, talented machine learning engineers, but also bringing in, I think we're, we're close to a total of 50 different individuals from all walks of life, from different you know, demographics and even sort of cultures and languages who are participating in kind of labeling which kinds of conversations do we think are problematic? Because that's the other piece of this. What's problematic? It depends so much on the cultural context. So we've we've really tried to go out of our way to get perspectives from a very broad set of different people to inform that model to make sure that it really is, you know, recognizing just the diversity that's out there in the way that people behave. I just I just love that. And something that I should have told you before we started taping, but I forgot to, but I sometimes tell people, I say, if you make a mistake or you want to cut something, do something like this or, you know, big, big gesture or make a clap so that you can see the audio waveforms the editor can see the video something crazy is going on we know to nix that part do you think that you can give participants in these communities a set of signals that they can say let's say you said something and i want to make sure that the algorithm kicks in can i trigger and say hey reevaluate the last 30 seconds of conversation because i said penguin yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question, and it's something that I I think could be very cool, and we definitely have the technology for. Um, now, it's ultimately up to the studio on how do they let players interact with what Talksmod is doing. Yeah. Um. So they would have to say, hey, we want to do kind of an audio cue report as opposed to any of these other systems. Um. But I I think you know you're you're onto something there. Instead of me, you know, having to pull myself out of the game and go through this menu to report something, if I can just say, you know, report or whatever that keyword is, it's probably got to be a little more special than that. And Toxmod can pick that up and it can just prioritize making sure we take a closer look at that. And if there's nothing there, there's nothing there, we throw it away. We're not doing anything with that data. But if there is something there, you're making certain that it's not going to slide by. Yeah. And obviously there is that point that you mentioned, because if you make a YouTube video that people don't like, almost anybody who's been online for any amount of time knows that you can be falsely reported for suicide watch or prevent. People like to falsely report uh, so the people's accounts get triggered. That's part of the trolling ecosystem. So, of course, if you give them that power, they're able then somebody, a troll is able to use that word anytime, of course, or trigger anytime. Which you and could again, also analyze, I suppose, and their history. Exactly. And again, like that that's a big part of why player reports today are only 30% actionable. Yeah. Some of it is players just don't have everything they need to provide the evidence. Um, but often it is, especially in a competitive game, you just beat me. And well, I could take the hit to my position on the ladder, or I could get you banned and disqualified and your victory doesn't count. Mm. Which am I going to do? Well, if I'm you know that kind of person, there there's a obvious right answer, quote right. unquote. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's, 
that's one of the most obvious and immediate things where even studios that are still figuring out, you know, how can we deploy Toxmod more broadly across the wider ecosystem? The most obvious and immediate place to put it is, yeah, when you get those player reports, we can help you sort of sift through and figure out what's actually legitimate here. What do you need to be paying attention to? And at the very least, you know, not only speed up your moderators, but also moderation is an awful job. Mm, like no just, you, you've got to have sympathy for these people Oof. who are sitting there at the front lines, hearing that day after day. And if we can be brought in to analyze this stuff in an automatic way, and if there's an edge case that we're unsure about, we're still bringing it to the people. But if it's something incredibly overtly obvious, there's no need to put them through that and we can just help them take action in the right way. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, it's such a sticky, sticky situation all across the board. So how how is this cheaper? You mentioned that when you stack up 100 million hours, even a dollar per hour is expensive. How is this cheaper than transcription and why is transcription so much more expensive than what you're talking about? Yeah. So again, it's cheaper than transcription because this initial sort of triage determination of which conversations are important um, is being run on much, much smaller machine learning models. And I'll, I'll get to how that can be possible in a moment to the degree that I'm you know, technical enough to answer that. But um, the, the simple truth is that doing that kind of emotion and prosody and behavior analysis, that can all just be done on much smaller models than transcription. So a, that opens up the possibility of doing it right there on your device. We don't even have to send the data off your device until we know that there's something worth mm. investigating there. But even if we have to do it on the cloud for whatever reason, it's much, much cheaper. And then we're only doing that transcription on a tiny fraction of the overall population instead of transcribing everything. And so that ends up with us at a price point um, that's you know in, in the territory of 100x cheaper than what you would get if you were just trying to do transcription alone. Um, now, why is transcription oh, cool. so expensive compared to emotion detection or something like that? The real answer is I don't know. Um, but the, the thing that I can <laughs> say, um, you know, I, I, I know there's people on my team who know, but it's, it's not me who's the expert there. But right. what I can say is a huge challenge for transcription is that it's two steps. You have to first identify, um, they're called phonemes, these sort of constituent sounds that make up words. So what are, what are the phonemes being said? And then after that, you have to do this really annoying process where you say, looking at these phonemes, which of them are part of a word? And also, how do you spell that word? Um, so this, this is you know, generally called, I think the acoustic model is listening and saying, what are the phonemes? And then the language model says, given that list of phonemes, turn that into lists of words with appropriate spelling that are legible to people. And as anyone who's ever taken an English class knows, the English language, just as an example, is a disaster. We don't have any consistent rules about how to spell things, how things you know, should sound. We have homophones all over the place. So it's actually quite complicated for these models to figure out how they should spell something. They often have to look at nearby words to figure out the context, to figure out you know, which version of the homophone is this. So that that you know maybe gives you a taste of what makes transcription such a challenging problem but for a real answer you'd have to talk to you know one of the amazing ml engineers we've got on the team no kidding 
Well, let's switch gears just for a little bit. Talk about the business side. How long have you been working on these problems in general? And has success, whatever that means, come relatively easily or with great difficulty? Obviously, at this point, you've gotten tens of millions in, in funding for your concept. Describe that journey from sitting there thinking, is this a good idea? Maybe it is to today where it appears that it's definitely a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I... I I'll say the journey's been fun, but probably never easy. Um, I think that's an important distinction. So the the very first line of code for that voice changing technology, um, I, I believe my my co-founder has found by looking into his past records, he actually wrote it on Christmas Day of 2015, wow. which maybe tells you a little bit about what Carter and I are like <laughs> in terms of being a bit of workaholics. But um so for for you know about a year, most of 2016, it was just pure research project, just having fun. 2017, we went and incorporated as an LLC, which for anyone out there thinking about building a startup where you take venture, don't incorporate as an LLC, incorporate as a C-Corp. Um, it sounds like a small detail, but it will <laughs> save you so much hassle on the legal side. Um, so um, 20... 2018, um, uh, I remember because a bunch of people made Star Wars jokes, May the 4th of 2018, oh, yeah. um, we left our jobs to work on Modulate full-time, and we kind of looked at our looked at our budgets and our, our bandwidth and said, all right, look, we've, we've got to raise some seed capital by the end of the year. That's how long we're going to be able to sustain ourselves, so we're going to take this time and really go out there. And at that point, we kind of had the tech, so we're looking at talking to industry, trying to figure out who is interested in this. Um, we talked to everyone. We talked to people in you know podcasting and marketing and call centers and gaming. We talked to people in def the defense industry, which is always an interesting conversation. Um, gaming definitely you know stood out to us, but we didn't have any connections from the start, so it definitely required quite a bit of walking the network. Um, the first angel investor we ever got. Um, was the this fellow by the name of Mike Dornbrook, who's been a, a great supporter for us. And I met Mike th through a contact that I met at a networking event where I only got invited to the networking event because of a VC that I pitched through a friend of a friend after getting to turned down by a previous VC. Like there's a nine step process to have finally found this person. And when I when I went out to get, you know, coffee with this guy, Mike Dernbrook, and tell him about what we were building, um, I remember we, we kind of opened. I took two minutes to walk through it. And he's like, OK, look, you seem like a nice guy. This is a terrible idea. I want to <laughs> I want to explain to you why you shouldn't throw your life away like this. And somehow we left that coffee with him committing to being an angel <laughs> investor. And I have no idea how I did that. But I still count that, you know, one of my greatest successes um, so, you know, that, that was kind of kicking off, finally getting some funding. Um, we actually finally raised that funding very beginning of 2019. Um, we technically missed our deadline of by the end of 2018, but only by a couple days. And because of that fun C Corp legal stuff I mentioned, um, so seven and months kind of from there. Yeah. So se seven months to go out and raise our first round of funding, which, you know, there's a lot of seasoned entrepreneurs out there who will tell you, hey, the right way to raise funding is to do it in two weeks and just sort of get it done with this roadshow. And maybe maybe there's people out there that can really do it. I honestly think seven months from where we were starting, I'm pretty impressed by that looking back. I 
the the first investor I ever pitched. I, I won't name the names, but I, uh, a contact of mine that I previously worked for was very generous and put me in touch with probably one of the top three VCs in the country. Cool. And that was the first VC I ever went to pitch. And I flew out to their office and I went in. And the guy comes in and he's like, so, so where's your pitch deck? And I'm like, what's a pitch deck? What's the name <laughs> of your company? We don't have a name yet. What, what are you going to sell? Oh, no, we just have this tech. I had no idea what the hell I was doing. And to this guy's credit, he was very generous with his time. He kind of helped me understand what I was missing. But going from that, in seven months to being able to close that first round of funding, there was a lot we had to learn. Um, but I, I think it was a, it was a cool trajectory. And I'm, I, I credit a lot of that learning to the fact that we started early and started actually going out and making mistakes. I think if we had tried to plan it all out ahead of time and only started talking to people in August or September, we never would have figured it all out in time because you just you you can't learn that stuff by thinking. You've got to go out and talk to people and hear the questions and see the way it works and feel what kind of explanations are resonating with people. Yeah, my my strategy if I ever cross that bridge is just to show up in a hoodie with a backpack and just tell them I dropped out of college. Problem solved. Uh, Give me the money. I'm not sure that works as well anymore, unfortunately, because I Dang think it. you're something like the hundred thousandth person to have noticed that. And, Just give you me know, money. The idea of, <laughs> yeah, no. Um, so I, it, it is, it is interesting. They're definitely, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go too near this, but there certainly are some, you know, real and in many cases problematic biases in terms of what VCs are looking for and what who they're going to ultimately give money to. Um, I, you know. I think, though, the good VCs, at the very least, um, if you can have a conversation with them, then from that point on, they're going to make their decision based on the actual business you've told them. <laughs> um, or at the very least, you know, the, the things they've learned about you. Um, and I, I've got a lot of respect for our early investors. You know, we had multiple people who signed on for a voice changing project, and now we're doing voice moderation. Um, and they could have made a big stink about that, but they've been incredibly supportive the whole way through. They listened when we told them, hey, we're seeing something even more exciting that we could pursue. Mm. Um, and I think that's the biggest distinction between a, a good and bad VC in my mind is no matter how smart the VC is, they don't live your business the way that you do. They're great for a source of advice, but if they come in assuming they know better and just trying to get you to go that route, it's just not going to be a successful partnership. But if they can come in and say, hey, you, you've got all this context I don't have. Where are you running into trouble? Where don't you know what to do next? Where my experience can be helpful? That's what we've gotten from these early investors. And that's, I think, a, a really fundamentally amazing relationship to have. That's, that's so cool. And on your personal journey, what job did you leave behind? What did you quit? Your partner yeah. was Jet Propulsion Laboratories. So I, I was at a uh, travel startup called Lola Travel. Um, it was founded by this fellow, Paul English, who was one of the co-founders of Kayak.com. So seasoned entrepreneur who knew a thing or two about travel. Um, I am not much of a traveler myself, but I was kind of looking for a seasoned entrepreneur who I could watch 
build a company from the inside and learn that to kind of inform what I would hopefully do myself one day. Um, and Paul was an incredibly gracious sort of leader there. He, um, you know, gave me the opportunity to pull him aside and ask annoying, incessant questions about every part of the business that I as I was technically a software engineer there working on recommendation systems to help recommend hotels in a, you know, more informed way about people. Um, you know, cool work, but nothing, nothing revolutionary. And I spent a ton of my time there you know, peppering Paul with all of these questions around how do you think about building HR or what does your hiring process look like or all of this. And Paul actually got really into it. And he would sometimes pull me aside and be like, hey, Mike, I'm brainstorming this new process for how the tech team should work. What are your thoughts on it? Help me workshop this. So he was really supportive. Um, and he, he was one of the people who put me in touch with a lot of great sort of initial VC connections when we went out to do that. Um, so I was very lucky to have a boss who was quite enthusiastic about kind of pushing me out of the nest and giving me the chance to, to actually try that. That's great. So did you have a degree in software? Actually, no. Um, I, I studied math and physics in college. Um, and I spent college doing internships around physics that I thought was very cool. And what I learned from those internships is physics is very cool and it takes forever. Um, and, you know, a lot of the big research that's happening these days, it's something like decade long or even kind of lifetime span research. Dang. And I just realized in doing that, like, I, I'm so fascinated by it. I'm so excited to learn about it, but I, I don't have the patience for that. I need to do something and see something come of it and iterate there. So I actually, I had done a little bit of programming in, in college. Nothing, nothing really on the academic side, but I, I was lucky enough to, you know, convince someone to take me as an entry level software engineer um, and kind of grow my career from there until ultimately leaving Lola to now never write code again. Um, but I still think it was a good journey for me. And it's useful to have that technical background and thinking about this kind of product that we're building for sure. So that you know how to talk about it intelligently at the very least. Absolutely. And, you know, be able to engage with the team. Like we're, we're doing some incredibly cool things, but I, I think the difference, like C CEOs, you don't have to be able to write the code, but you do need to be able to understand when someone comes to you and says, Hey, you know, we didn't write the code base to support this feature. We're going to have to rewrite some of these components have any understanding of what that means, of what that costs. Don't just write it off and say, no, you'll just go get it done or whatever the hell Elon is doing with having people print <laughs> out code. or yeah. and, like, How you, much does you, it weigh? That's the like, only criteria. <laughs> I... I, I, I try to stay far away, but that, that one just, I, I can't, I can't for the life of me find a rationale for printing out code and trying to look at a page of it, but. And then shred um, it immediately after because it's inherently <laughs> unsecure to have code printed out. I mean, yeah, I, like, I, I guess if they were going to print out the code, I'm glad they're shredding it after. It's really yeah. just the printing out the code in the first place. That's uh, the. What a train wreck. Um, but yeah. Yes. Um, All right. So the co-founder route, which is obviously the ideal route. If you look at Y Combinator, any of these incubators, they always want people to have a co-founder. I've always I have a love hate relationship with the idea because it seems kind of like a marriage and a marriage can either work out or it cannot work out. How do you feel about having a co-founder? Do you feel like you lucked out and finding the right one? Is it something that you would just advise as a blanket statement? How can people decide with whom they should go into business or not? 
Well, I definitely cheated is the first thing. Um, my co-founder, you know, we we were in undergrad together. Uh, we both studied physics, actually. Um, and there was kind of a notorious physics lab class that was well known at the school of, hey, if you take this class and you're paired up together, either you emerge lifelong friends or lifelong enemies. There's no in-between. Um, we managed to make it through as friends. So we had already had a little bit of that kind of trial by fire of how that works. By the time Modulate started, we'd been friends for five, six years. It's now been over a decade that I've known Carter. Um, so this isn't someone that, you know, I had an idea and I went out and tried to find someone who could build it. It's someone that I really had a relationship with. And that has paid dividends every single day. I think that having a co-founder who's something that you really can see yourselves as a team versus a co-founder that is you're both each other's employee if you don't really have that pre-existing relationship. And you can build it over time, but it's, a, I think, a very different dynamic. So I would say if you can do what I did and cheat and use someone who, you know, they've got to have the competence, they've got to have the skill, but someone that you also know and have that relationship with, I would take that over soloing every time. Being a founder is a tough job and having someone you can just commiserate with and brainstorm with is super valuable. But I'll say I'm I'm a little bit more unsure when it comes to you know picking a co-founder that you haven't really worked with before versus trying to go solo. I I would probably if I had to go that route, I might go solo. But for my first couple of hires, really go above and beyond in giving them you know equity, giving them ownership in the company, giving them that opportunity to really you know devote themselves, so that if we do find we're working well together there's kind of a path to graduating them up to the co-founder level, but giving us a chance to to work on the relationship first. Yeah, that, that makes so much sense because my approach is just, I've got an idea. It's a Dropbox, but for hot dogs. I just need a coder now who can be a co-founder who can make it happen. That's my philosophy generally. Well, I'm, I am going to be honest with you. That's not all you need to make that that particular business idea happen. I okay. feel like there's a few other things you would need to to overcome for Dropbox for hot dogs. Hmm. Okay. Well, all right. We'll put a pin in it. <laughs> now that I know you, I'm going to pepper you <laughs> incessantly on LinkedIn. <laughs> I'm going to give you pitches every 15 minutes. You're going to rue the day that you gave me your email address. Uh, <laughs> and I'm going to collect them all and I'll send them back to you in a neatly little bound book a year from now. <laughs> yeah, print it out and say, this is how much your annoyance weighed. Elon would be proud. Uh, but no, that is a very nice thing. So you had a great experience. Your story makes so much more sense. The co-founder doing it that way, obviously, is much more of a guarantee that things will work yeah. out versus you get a year into it and realize, hey, they're not doing any of the work or they're hung over half the time and that's not helpful, right? <laughs> so... All right. So some of the challenges since it's only been a handful of years, what's been one of the biggest roadblocks or challenges that you've had in getting adoption for either of these ideas? Yeah, I mean, I I think the broad strokes big challenge is uh, especially enterprises, which AAA game studios absolutely count as an enterprise. Um they have these big institutional processes for buying things. And those processes don't know how to buy something they've never heard of before. Mm. And whether it's voice changing or, you know, again, there's some voice moderation technology out there that's looking at player reports or something, but this kind of what we call proactive voice moderation, more comprehensive, that's also something they've never heard of before. They don't really know how to buy it. So there's a lot of education work that we need to do. 
Um, and I, I think we've done a really great job. The, those partners that we have closed have really strong relationships with us. We've been, you know, really grateful for their, their continued feedback and support. But I like to think we've been able to reciprocate and provide real meaningful value beyond just the product level. Um, but it's definitely something where it needs to be a much more kind of high touch relationship because even if there are folks on the trust and safety team totally get it, does their boss get it? Does their boss's boss, does the VP of engineering, does the head of finance who needs to approve the budget, we need to make sure all of these people understand what's the actual impact on the bottom line, what's it going to take to make this work um, legal, and how do they update their privacy policy and you know notify their, their users in a way that's respectful about this recording. Um, I, I know you mentioned you're not too much of a gamer, so you may not have seen this, but maybe two, two and a half years back when the PS5 first came out, Sony had a new feature where on the PS5, you could submit reports about people in voice chat. And that meant it's possible if a PS5 is chatting with a PS4, then a PS4 user's voice could get recorded. That was new. They wanted to notify their users, uh. which is a good thing to want. Um, but unfortunately, they kind of missed the mark on the actual notification because PS4 users just suddenly had a pop-up showing up saying, your voice might be recorded. That's it. That's all the context they got. Didn't go great. And, you know, so, so Sony, you know, res responded and came out with a bunch more explanation and everyone eventually figured out what was going on and it was fine. And I, I think it is good that Sony is working on solving those problems, but it is crucially important when you put this technology out there to communicate clearly with your users of why is their audio getting recorded? What is it? What is going to happen with that data? How much of it is getting stored? Do they have rights around it? Yes, you know, GDPR guarantees that, but they have rights around, you know, how long we're going to be able to store that if they want to see it or, you know, exercise that right to be forgotten. Making sure users understand that this is ultimately something being done to help them. They're not having the experience they want. We're trying to help them have the experience they want. If they're not excited about this, something has gone wrong. Um, and usually it's just that we're not communicating clearly enough to them what we're doing. Um, so that's, I think, it's just a really important part of this challenge and something we've invested a lot of time and energy into making sure we're always speaking thoughtfully about this. We're always communicating clearly in a way that, you know, any user that has questions can go to our website and, you know, confirm that we're, we're, we're here for the players. We're not here to try and make money or manipulate their data. And we're, we're ultimately here because we're, we're players ourselves and we want to have that better experience for us and for everyone. That's so great. Well, my entire life's experience has just been one giant exercise in the right to be forgotten. I'm working very, very hard on being forgotten with everything I do. So I'm way ahead of you there. Um, do you I can feel tell that from the podcast? <laughs> yeah. You're like, ah, oh, get that guy out of there. Uh, <laughs> one of them is pretty cool, but the other one, not so much. Uh, so have you made a dent in any of this, do you feel? Do you feel that things are changing or still very much TBD? I mean, yes, we've made a dent, but also it's not nearly enough. And that's why we're continuing to go out and, you know, push push further and work with larger and uh, wider variety of studios. But 
you know, we're, we're out there with a number of studios today. We've been out with some studios, for instance, Rec Room, the, the social VR platform for over a year now, um, where we've been, you know, continually working with them and helping them identify, you know, problematic players of a variety of types. And we're hearing really positive things, not just, you know, seeing it in the stats is one thing, but honestly, you know, hearing from players, hey, you know, I, I came back to this title three months later after having this really bad experience and it's changed, it feels different now. That's really gratifying to see. And so I think we we have made a real dent on those titles we're live with. I think we've also made some dent in the industry. You're seeing all of these big studios suddenly kind of waking up and saying, oh, wait, we've got to do something about voice moderation. There have been a couple announcements over the last year or two. Trust me, there's more announcements coming. Um, a lot of these studios making entirely new teams specifically to focus on this problem. Um, they're, they're really kind of realizing there's something big here. And while we can't take full credit for that, I do like to think we've played a small part by showing that it's possible to do better. That's so awesome. So five years from now, the idea is ubiquitous. Every voice chat game, would that be your ultimate goal? Implements this technology? Yeah, I, I would say yes, though. Again, like for for us, I think the goal is every every player should be able to have the experience they want. Maybe there will be some platforms that say, hey, our whole thing is we're completely unmoderated. That's the experience. That That's not a terrible thing to do as long right. as you're clear about it as long as everyone knows so i i'd say you know what what our mission is is everyone who wants to be able to define what kind of space they're creating has the tools to communicate that with their players to enforce it with their players and to you know educate their players about why they made that decision and what that decision actually means so in certain rooms, for example, you could have a little pop-up that says, hey, there's not enough racism in this room. This is the racist room. Please up the racism. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say no to that one. Um, mm. there, was a, there, there was a platform that was trying to do real-time voice moderation a little ways back um, called Bleep that had a, had a bit of that kind of failure mode where they, they showcased, you know, hey, here, here's our user interface. And there was literally a sliding scale of how much white supremacy do you want? None, <laughs> a little, a lot. And it's just, oh, geez. So, so, someone from Trusted Safety needed to, needed to talk about how that works. But I do Man. think there's something of, you know, hey, how, how much do you want to prioritize, you know, having having a you know safer more inclusive space here versus being able to discuss things i i think an example is you know people who are trying to understand gender um there are people out there a lot of people who are asking well-intentioned innocent questions that if someone who you know identifies as non-binary or otherwise in lgbtq sort of uh in, in that community, if they see those questions, it feels like someone is questioning their identity. That can be really painful for that person. That's legitimate. That's important. We need to, we need to care about that. But there also should be any space for people to go and innocently ask those questions. Because if there's no space like that, they all end up on the dark web getting their answers from the people we don't want answering those questions. And so I, I think that's the kind of line that I think of is, you know, should this be actively a safe space that is designed to, you know, preserve and protect the folks that need it? Or is this space more curated to allow questions to flow? 
But it's it's rarely going to be true that anyone wants a space where hostility is welcome or encouraged, right? There's a difference between asking questions or missing context and intentionally trying to make someone's day worse. (laughs) Very few people, I think, would sign up for, I want to play the game (laughs) that will try to make me feel as bad as possible. There's just not a market for that. <laughs> well said, well said. Uh, well, as we approach the end of our hour, I think, uh, can can we let the big reveal out now? Can we drop the bombshell of the episode? So can you just, for the rest of us, what does your real voice sound like? Obviously, you've been modulating it this entire time. Can you, you know, just I turn used, it off? I used to do that. I haven't been doing it for, for this, but I, I actually, um, in our in our seed funding... Um, how how I got one of the investors that ended up being one of our, our leads there engaged is I had half the phone call and then I revealed that that actually wasn't my voice. Um, so <laughs> yes, it's, sir, it's Mr. Obama, before, right away. But... I'd be happy to provide you with funding. Yeah. <laughs> uh. But no, I, I haven't been haven't been using that gimmick for a little bit. But it, it's an it's an interesting one, um, and uh, yeah, it's it's I think it, it's cool to to be able to you know see the see the diversity of voice in that way, and I think helps you kind of better understand some things about how you express yourself as well. Well, it's it's a fabulous concept, and it's a great example of a niche that many people don't think about it, but the more you think about it, the deeper the rabbit hole goes. As our buddy Elon is going to discover about running a social media network, the more you think about it, the more new questions pop up of what you're looking to achieve. What is free speech? What is hate speech? What is harassment? It goes back to the very beginning of this conversation. What is honesty? What is white supremacy? What are all of these things? We're constantly in this debate right now and how do we regulate them so and i mean what what i'd say is it's it's not even the more you think about it those questions are out there whether you're thinking about them whether you're paying attention to them or not and it's just a matter of do do you want to take responsibility for being a thoughtful person trying to to make the the right kind of space or are you just gonna you know neglect that responsibility and keep it all on the shoulders of your users well, I'm glad that you found your way and your path. It's a very cool path. Uh, I wish you incredible success. Thank you so much for sitting down with me and sharing your ideas and your thoughts. I look forward to you dominating the world in short order. I can't wait to hear about it in the next decade. It's going to go very well. Um, to wrap this up, any closing remarks, anything you want to promote or direct people towards, I'll let you finish this episode. I, I appreciate it. You know, we've we've been growing the team pretty rapidly over the the last couple of months. You mentioned, you know, we've raised some money not too not too long ago. Um, very thankfully, given the given the economy, so we're we're still hiring for a couple of roles. If anyone's listening and interested, uh, modulate.ai/careers. Uh, I. I, I'm very passionate about culture. I like to think we've got a pretty unique thing going here, even beyond the the product that we're building. So, check it out if you're interested. And otherwise, Ross, thanks again for having me. It's been a, it's been a lot of fun. Very cool. The pleasure is all mine. And with that, the official podcast is over. 